0: Hello and welcome to What's The VPN. This is a podcast dedicated to the history of Australian dance music. We will be chatting to the DJs, promoters and club owners who have been instrumental in growing this scene from warehouse events to the major festivals we have today. So strap yourself in, subscribe to the channel and there'll be more episodes dropping in the near future. Here we go, episode one of season one. Season one is gonna be based on the Brisbane scene. First cab off the rank is a DJ that I'm sure most of you would have heard of from Brisbane. His name is Barking Boy. Enjoy. So welcome to the show, DJ Barking Boy. Thanks for jumping on, mate. How you going, Steve? Good, good, good. First question, I guess. Might as well get it out of the way. How did you get the name Barking Boy? Well, that goes back to
1: 92 when uh, Edwin was putting on Adrenaline and he knew that I'd been playing around town in Brisbane. He'd probably heard a few of my tapes. And that was mainly friends' gigs and stuff like that. And I'd just been calling myself Troy. And he said, listen, I want you to come up with a a crazy sort of wacky name, something that's – because Edwin loved his out there sort of stuff. Yeah, he said, I want you to come up with something unusual. and." <laughs> So back then, um, I used to hang out with a lot of trippers and that, even back in the tunnel days when I went there. So I used to bark at people when um, when they were pretty out of it. And <laughs> they all thought I was a tripper, but no, I was just used to spin them out um so and one of my mates said why don't you call yourself barking boy and I didn't realize it was going to be a career move like I just thought oh well I'm playing at that rave I'll call myself barking boy for that and then it just stuck from then on because the next thing there'd be one gig after the next and I just left it there and the other thing is I've got canine things as well so I guess that goes well with it <laughs> too. <laughs>
0: oh cool at least there's like a bit of a story behind it there's
1: a bit of a story, yeah. And as I got older, I thought maybe I can't really change it to Barking Man. I'll just leave it as Barking Boy. That'll do be... <laughs> Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. How do you change it once you've got it? It's stuck. Well, that's
1: it. I remember there was a phase in 97, 98 when I'd be doing a, a more up-tempo, harder gig, and it'd be Barking Boy without the G. I'd put the little dash in there to make it like slam and pump and jump and like Barking Boy angus used to laugh at that a lot and be like hey is it barking or barking today and I, if i was doing a house gig i'd leave the g in there so yeah
0: <laughs> so mate winding right back like um we've been talking uh, off air i thought you grew up in Brisbane, but you actually grew up on the gold coast yes so yeah. when did you get interested in electronic music or dance music
1: this is such an interesting story i'll try and keep it to a minimum because i could go on forever about this so We got got all night. (laughs) Well, I was lucky in that being the youngest in the family, I had an older brother and sister who were heavily into music. So right from when I was a little kid, even in the late 70s, my brother was always buying records. My mum was into music. Record player was always going. And my sister, she's 15 years older than me, so she had really uh, eclectic kind of tastes. Like she got me into things like Jean-Michel Jarre, like I heard him when I was about nine um Propaganda, um, Tangerine Dream, really cool synthy stuff like that. Plus, my brother loved Devo, and he was always into craft work as well. But I wasn't really that into craft work back then. So, but it was all those sort of sounds, and also all disco stuff as well, all those Ripper '77, '78 compilations and that. So we always knew our top 50. We always used to get the weekly top 50 charts from the record stores. Um, I used to listen to Radio 10, which becomes Stereo 10. I used to have a little ghetto blaster and I'd always um, record snippets of tracks, like little mashups of it, not not realising, but, you know, in a way that was probably mixing back then, but i just record little snippets.
0: On the cassette tape?
1: Yeah, yeah. On the old ghetto blasters, used to lay in bed at night, just listening to music. Yeah, after that, always... I think commercial music around 85, 86 started to deteriorate a bit. We kind of lost interest in it then. And that's when we went more into um, different sounds. Like my brother was always into the German side of dance, like groups like Erotic Dissidents and that New Beat sort of stuff that was coming out in 86, 87. Then you had Mars Pump Up The Volume and uh, Numero Uno, all those tracks were coming out. So we were into dance. And there was also a couple of dance music programs on Oh, it wasn't. There was one before Triple Z that we used to listen to on a Saturday Arvo in on about 1989 that was awesome. But then for Triple Z dance show came about in 91, I reckon. Well, that was the one with Peter Morgan Kesson. But we'd listen to that every Saturday as well. And that was just awesome because every week just upfront tunes.
0: I was going to um, say, so was that like rave music, or was that like sort of hip hop and stuff like that?
1: Oh no, that was definitely well. Originally, it was all stuff like soul to soul and all that era. But once you got into nineteen ninety, it started getting a bit more of that UK warehouse ravey sound. Oh, just I because I'm trying to not jump ahead. When I was in high school, um, I specifically recall sitting there at lunchtime, and I was kind of friends with everyone, but a lot of my sporty sort of mates had come up, and I'd have my Walkman on. And they'd say, well, what are you listening to? And I'd give them a, give them a walk and what's this faggot shit they'd always say every time <laughs> because it'd be technotronic or something like yeah. that. And back then they didn't know, they didn't understand what dance music was. And But when the big clincher for us was when it was 1990, because I used to go out clubbing underage as we all did back then. You had your little fake ID and uh, you had your mates uh, all you had to recite was your mate's parents' um, Christian name and middle name and date of birth and all that sort of stuff, and it'd just be a photocopy and you'd get in that way. But I used to go to some clubs down the southern end of the coast and it was you'd, you'd hear probably three or four dance songs all night and they'd all come in a row, so you'd get all pumped up and then the rest of the night would just be rock all the time. So this one night, it was 1990, we went to surface, we were looking for somewhere to go and my mate, said there was a guy handing out pamphlets and my mate said where can we go to hear some good dance music and he's like oh you want to go up to the tunnel just up there and that was that was a turning point because we walked down those stairs and we just thought wow this is exactly what we've been looking for and mark b was doing his thing absolute legend and yeah from that point onwards for at least probably 18 months most friday and saturday nights we were there yeah, I used to be I used to be good at golf then too. That kind of ruined the golf career once I found the tunnel. Um, but yeah, and then moved to Brisbane after that, and still came down to check out the tunnel on Sunday nights. But it all kind of yeah, it was a good entry to go to the tunnel. And I always say as well that it helps being on the dance floor before you DJ because you get that feel of what the crowd wants. Yeah, and- totally. What really makes the
0: night. So the tunnel, that was in Surface Paradise. When did that run from? Like, was that a 1990?
1: I reckon, because you always think that when you got into the scene was the beginning of it, but, you know, it was going on way before I did. Um, I reckon the tunnel was about 88. I've recently seen some photos online that make me think that. So the tunnel was the tunnel until about 94, and then it became DS1. I know that's when Senard and Mark B were there, and Thief used to guest there quite a bit. And then after that, I, I'm not even—it's still there, but it changes names so often, I can't keep up with it. But it was just a great venue, a great size. You walk down the stairs, and yeah, they used to do boat cruises as well. But it was just a nice amount of people in the scene there. It was um, probably 200 people, and it was just a really good scene. If someone new come into it, everyone was very welcoming. Yeah, but. A lot like Brisbane too, the scene back in those days, it wasn't just people that were out to party. There was a lot of street street guys, street streeties there. A lot of people that were on, you know, they didn't really have a home. They just, that their life was coming to party. A lot of uh, dodgies, but all good people. We all united over the music, like all different backgrounds.
0: We can probably get into the tube a bit later.
1: Yeah, well, the tubes Or, or we, we can roll into that. Itself. But that was how,
0: that was sort of like my, um, yes. how I sort of got into it. But that was the same for me because I'd come from sort of like, you know, like Brisbane nightclubbing in like the CBD where there was violence and gay bashings and all sorts. And then the first time I went to the tube, I was just blown away. You know, like there there would be like a guy in his mid-40s, young kids, a transvestite, you know, like it was just such a wicked mix of people and no one batted an eyelid.
1: It was so good in that respect. See, that's... That's one difference I noticed with Brisbane and the Gold Coast back then. The Gold Coast was, well, you'd go to Brisbane, right? And the Beat was the place to be when I first went there. I missed the alarm days. That was like 89, 90, I think. But the Beat, such a huge gay scene there. And boy, did I know how to party. Like you, oh, yeah. I'm so thankful to the gay scene for getting the whole Brisbane movement going because... You'd go to the beat back in the day, you'd have Angus, Edwin, Kersen up there. Um, control used to support the forum. But it was just such a well-structured way to do it because Angus would work at Central Station Records. There's a whole other story in that as well to, <laughs> to do with my brother. Because the original question you asked me was, How did I get into DJing? Wasn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll
1: get we'll get to that soon. Yeah. But. So yeah, Kerson would play his tunes on Triple Z dance show on a Saturday afternoon. You'd go out and you'd hear those same awesome tunes at night. Plus, everyone would be listening at the same time too. Like all 300 people in the scene would all be listening to it. Angus worked at Central and so did Edwin. So you'd get to know them through that. And that gets me on to the other story, which relates to my brother, right? So when we were going to the tunnel, my brother bought Dex. I think it was March 91. Could have been March 92, but I think it was 91. Anyway, he bought decks, and he'd go up to Central Station. We were living on the Gold Coast still then, and he used to be pretty well cashed up, and I had nothing. Then I was just on aussie study doing my degree, and he'd spend six or eight hundred bucks, like, and I'd just say to him, "You get this one, get that one," because I'd I'd just shove it in his backpack and he'd buy it. So but I remember Angus and Edwin used to love it when he'd walk in too, because they'd be like, oh, here's this guy. He loves yes. the tunes. And, yeah, yeah. and Angus was brilliant too, and that you can sort of chat chat to him about any tune that might be in your head. Like, what's the one that goes, yeah, asked this one here and he'd pick it out. Like he was a master at that. So yeah, that, so my brother would buy all the tunes. Plus he'd get shipments from overseas from the UK and that sort of got me into mixing at home straight away still got some old cassette tapes from my first week on the decks but one day I'll get to digitizing them yeah and so that's how I started playing but as far as no one actually ever really showed me um I just used to watch mainly Kesson up there Angus I didn't even try to scratch as good as he could I just thought I'll just watch Angus do that I'll leave yeah. that to him but yeah watching Kesson and also a guy called Zan Luke Hollis he he invited me over to his place once and I had a mix there. That was my first mix as far as, um, yeah, just being on the decks before my brother actually bought them. So that's when I started. But, yeah, the the gig, the first gig was actually um, Adrenaline when Edwin called me up, yeah.
0: Oh, so he called you up out of the crowd? No, no, called me, phoned me up. Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah, sorry. Yeah, okay.
1: yeah. Well, calling me you up out could... of the crowd. There is a story like that too, actually. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So my first mix in front of a crowd, which was before Adrenaline, I'm glad you reminded me of that, was at a a party called Hinterland Hype, which people who were there will never stop talking about. It It was out at Mount Tambourine. It was was at Mount Tambourine Hall and Angus was up on stage and met a lot of people that night. It was a great event. Um, Anyway, Angus called me up. He was pretty wasted, having a great time. And he said, hey, man, do you want to play a tune? I was like, yeah, okay. So I flipped through his crate and I pulled out Get Down Everybody, which is I knew like I'd heard that on the dance show a few times and I played the vocal mix and I just remember mixing it in. It just went in perfectly and I was just, yeah, an amazing moment. So I got back down yeah. off the stage and it just made my night. Yeah, Buzzing. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was just a good event. Everyone had the best time because – um <laughs> Yeah, there'd been a few quiet months building up to that, and yeah, it was great to be, it was like in a field as well as a hall. so you could be indoors or outdoors, but I'll never forget that one.
0: Such a shame that there's not more footage of those old pigs yes. and stuff. Like, I mean, people did have camcorders, and I, I often sit and think, there mm. must be like tapes just sitting in people's. Well, my brother
1: like, used to bring his video camera up to the tube. If you go to my Vimeo page, you'll see a few tube videos there. It's like,
0: yeah, I've watched them all. I've watched yeah. them all. <laughs> and, oh, Global
1: yeah. grooves, last night, tube. Um, I'm trying to remember what other ones are there. Yeah, there's a few beauties. Um, But yeah, back in the day, I guess there wasn't many photos because people kind of frowned upon cameras. It was kind of like,
0: get your camera out of
1: here, dude, because no one yeah. wanted
0: to have their photo taken. Bit more like that now, I think.
1: Yeah, well, geez, well, that's another thing there. You look at the dance floor and everyone's got their phones up, filming everything, eh?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. good because you get to check it out on Instagram, but, oh, just... Yeah, hating, I know. There's, eh?
1: there's positives and negatives. I mean, I, even with Candy Flip, I've often thought it would be great to um make it exactly like the 90s, but then you'd have to allow smoking and <laughs> and you'd have to ban mobile phones. That's the first two things yeah. you'd have to do. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Wouldn't happen. Yeah. So when was your first like DJ residency?
1: Okay. So after Adrenaline, I got a bit of work from that. And um, DJ Thief invited me in to play at Roundabout, which was a really popular Wednesday night, Harder Edged event. That was always a good little crowd. Everyone was always up for it. Changed venue quite a bit. It used to be at the old Lexington Queen. And then it moved to Club Vertigo. But, yeah, that was great. I'd just go in and play for an hour and a half, and then there was usually Thief, um, Dizzy, Santa. It had also been at Metropolis originally, which was a great venue. That's where the first few Adrenaline ones were.
0: Is that in the Valley?
1: The Metropolis was actually in the city downstairs from the old, where the Myer Centre is now, like right down the bottom there. It's a great venue. There used to be a really good club called Club Go-Go as well. Which was in the same complex, and I remember the first week I moved to Brisbane in 1991. I went in there on a Wednesday night. Darren Brie was playing, and the Stompers were up on stage doing their thing with talcum powder. They used to put the talcum powder on the floor and do their dancing. Yeah, it was a great era. It was oh, so, so, so raw st- and
0: stomping like on could, the talcum powder.
1: Yeah, yeah, it used to do it at the tunnel too. A lot of the really good dancers they'd put talcum powder down so they could do their oh yeah stomping, I guess you'd call it, but it was all just part of the scene then it was just such a good amount of people and everyone was another thing that i didn't mention is the tunes too like it wasn't broken into genres and styles then it was all you're going out to a rave or you're going to techno or to a club and a lot of the tracks were just made with everything in one like a lot of those hamster records they'd have piano then hoover then vocal you know a little bit of everything in each track and the tempos all tended to be around the same uh they weren't fast it was just it was hard but not fast a lot of industrial sort of tracks still went well with you know you could mix it all up in one and the whole crowd loved it it was no it didn't really start breaking off into genres until 93 when um people started to like raves would have multiple rooms one would be hard the other might be garage the other one drum and bass or you know it would started breaking up around that era yeah um which in a way was sad but I think it all kind of kept like the tube for example that that all really blended well in there you had the main room and the house room and that was great for
0: so long so that was your first um residency yeah things just snowball from there or was it
1: well that that roundabout residency after that, I got a residency in the city at Diamonds in Elizabeth Street. Now that was <laughs> that was a dodgy residency, but it was good in hindsight because it taught me just about being in a nightclub more often, happening to deal with the weirdest, most abstract quests, like mainly Akadaka, but you know, just that sort of that those sort of clubs where you get to play what you wanted for twenty minutes or half an hour, you'd think everyone was loving it, next thing they come up asking for rock and all that. Yeah. So, but it was good to be in a nightclub. I kind of miss those nights too, where they're pretty quiet, but you're just working in a club, playing tunes. And yeah, all sorts of requests and that. But I think I was probably there for about four to six months. And then I just went back to doing raves and probably still at roundabout as well. But then Sue Cleary from the Tube called me up in about, oh, probably late 94. Um, and asked me, maybe it was early 95, and asked me if I wanted to um, come in and play at the Tube on Wednesday nights with Jenny and Thief at Hard Drive. And so once I started doing that, then she asked me if I wanted to do Saturday nights and then Friday nights. And then it all snowballed from there. Yeah, best, best club in history for so many reasons. Like it was the teamwork that I always remember when I look back at it. Like all the DJs. You wouldn't always play at the same time slot but whatever slot you were given you'd look at who was after you or who was before you and you'd think about what was best for the night what was best for the club and you'd play a set according to that. I know I got pigeonholed in the the last set which I loved um, which enabled me to go wherever I wanted to being last which was usually coming off someone who was really pumpy and then just winding it down blissfully at the end of the night while still being quite hard at times but yeah, just incredible nights there that would go right through till 5am. Like, um, yeah, working 3 to 5am every Friday and Saturday night.
0: I just feel like so lucky that I got to go to the Tube because it was just so, it was such an awesome club. You walk down those stairs off the main road and, you know, you're getting your ID checked and stuff like that. And you walk down and open those glass doors and it just, just hit you, hey, like.
1: And, and we, you know, when you look back at it, I have a lot to thank Sue and Gus for that were running the club because they weren't making much out of it. Like, naturally, if you're a club owner, you want to be making heaps of bar sales. So you want more commercial music, or, but it was just a great place for everyone to go to have fun. Obviously, they were paying their cover charge to get in. There was a lot of water consumed, but it was just the tunes that were played. You were always able to break in brand new, upfront underground tunes. I used to love going to Central and just taking the shipment straight in there and just breaking in new tunes every week and everyone would love it. It was just, from a DJ's point of view, it was great to play there as well because you weren't up on a stage, which, like, you're slightly elevated from the crowd, but I've always loved being on the same level as the crowd so you can feel it with them. I don't like being pushed up in some little you know like when I was at family it felt quite isolated right up there when the crowd's down low yeah I always preferred to be with the crowd or as close as them as possible just to feel that vibe and the tube yeah the sound system was always great I'm still I'm still paying the price for it my ears ring every morning when I wake up (laughs) but (laughs) I always had the monitor on my right ear well everyone did so I got used to that from being there from 94 to 99 that when I play now, I kind of have to have the monitor on my right ear because that's just what I did yeah, for so Yeah, you're so used to it. Yeah. But, you know, all the pool tables around the club, um, just the cash vibe, all the things that would go down there when you'd have a big volume festival and you'd open up the car park at the back and great memories.
0: I don't know how much truth there is to it, but I've heard of stories of like loads of celebrities used to go there. Like I, I heard once that the Oasis boys were there when they were in town one night and
1: yeah, there was certainly, oh, I'm trying to think, well, I I'd often see footy players there, believe it or not. I won't name names, but I saw quite a few footy players there off Chops near the bar a couple of times and they'd still be there at the end of the night. Yeah, there was someone else really famous there one night that I completely forgot about. I didn't, um, yeah, someone mentioned it to me the other week and I'd forgotten about that. But I do remember, um, yeah, a lot of guests. DJs like internationals, but everyone would feel so at home there. I remember chatting with Paul Van Dyke for ages after the night. We were just chatting about Seinfeld episodes and stuff like that, just hanging out in there. Awesome. Um, yeah, just a really, yeah, it's, it's so many, so many good things about that venue. It was very sad when it closed. It was just, um, I guess they just couldn't make the books work anymore. It was just, um, it was September 99. Anyway, September the 4th, 99.
0: Because it changed from the Tube
1: to Technomad.
0: The Technomad, yeah. then the Matrix, was it?
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah. So I mean, it was, was it even
0: pumping then. Like, it was awesome. That's right. Well,
1: Technomad, I mean, for me, it was weird. It was like going from, it was the same venue, but it was almost like leaving your favorite club, like a football player must feel when they go to another club or something. So I was in the same venue with completely different people around me. And the teamwork that I'd had at the Tube with all the DJs was suddenly gone because they'd all moved on to other clubs. So it was definitely a more harder edge crew I played with at Technomad. I went from being one of the harder DJs at the Tube to suddenly at the opposite end of the scale when it became Technomad. Um, But they were all, I got along really well with everyone there. I had good times. It was just, um, they got a lot of big internationals in there too. Like they spent a lot of cash on building that up. But it still didn't have that that unity that the tube had. That's the thing. Yeah. Like in the long run, anyway. But it was. I'm I'm grateful that they did it there because it was still um yeah still good memories for a few years.
0: So was that the guys that run the beat? Did they yes, take it over?
1: It was. Yeah. 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 They took it over and they'd kind of um, shuffle DJs between venues really at times. Yeah. That reminds me actually one of the biggest honors that i ever had because edwin was a classic everyone loved edwin and i remember him coming up to me once at central station when the tube was in full force like just pumping and he's like hey what's going on with you i said what he's like ah oh, you're bloody taking all the crowd away from the beat three <laughs> to five on a saturday night and i was like oh shit yeah it's going all right but he uh, he always had a good following though edwin was just oh, a great yeah. people person an entertainer
0: when I used to, I used to go to the beat from time to time and there would be people that would just be waiting all night for Edwin to come on. Yeah. You couldn't drag him away. There might have been a rave on at the arena. And you say, come on, man, we're all going. And they're like, nah.
1: He just I'm, had I'm such a great aura about him, didn't he, Edwin? Like from the moment I met that guy, he was kind of like a celebrity or something. He just had that awe about it. Everyone just gravitated towards him because he was such a nice guy too, such a yeah. good listener. Yeah, he's a good bloke.
0: Always but- just... Up the BPM. Yeah, as he come on, it was just like.
1: <laughs> yeah, we actually had him at. I think it was the first Candy Flip, first or second. Might have been the first. Yeah, and he played last. That was when we did it at um, the Shamrock. Yeah, way back then. But yeah, Edwin was always a classic.
0: Yeah, so I'm. I think I missed. A bit of it, I was living overseas in uh, like 98, 99. And when I come back to Brisbane at some point in the year 2000, the rave scene in Brisbane had just exploded. Like the the raves at the arena, um, the system yeah. sixes, they were just huge. Like you, it was hard enough to even get in. And when yeah, well, you did that's... get in, you couldn't like even find your way around the venue. There was that many people.
1: That's true, Hey, eh? The rave scene did take off then because that was around the time it coincided with the club scene kind of going a bit quieter with the tubes sort of dying in September 94. But I know when System 6 started, which was really a continuation of Roundabout and Hard Drive, Brent, Brenton used to run um, these Hard Drive events too, which were awesome, or Overdrive I should say, they are called Overdrive, they like a rave. So he started System 6, I think it was 97 or 98, and I used to play at that every week, but the tube sort of said to me look you need to make a choice here you can't do both because and it wasn't really like them to do that and i remember at the time i was a little shitty but in hindsight i totally understand why sue would have said that to me good on her like because yeah they needed to keep the crowd in the tube i did enjoy playing system six and i obviously missed it but i always had fun at the tube anyway but I think System 6 was a bit of a link into, like, you know, Jason Kinneber with all the adventure parties. They just went from strength to strength, um, and System 6 might have been a part of that. But, yeah, I remember going to some of those raves around 2000, 2001 that I was playing at, at the showgrounds and that, and just walking in and thinking, whoa, what an explosion of people, which reminds me of 93 when the site come along. You probably wouldn't remember that, but nah. similar thing. That was when it went from just the beat, that was really kicking and then the site come along and which is where the prodigy were that night and yeah that was huge and that was a major change to the scene because it went from two three hundred people to suddenly a thousand people into it so a lot of people started clubbing in that site era and it's probably similar to the big explosion around 2000 as well with all the adventure raids and um yeah that's where it started to change a lot um a lot more a lot more people into it, a lot more DJs and the the birth of the CDJs and
0: nightclubs. Just um, the unless I'm re- remembering wrong, wasn't the original System Six like in like a small room, off? Yep. I can't think of the name the of the side road. of the arena. Go up a set of stairs and it was like, yep. just in this like slamming. Yeah, the room with those little, little room.
1: bicycle things. On yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Which um, you know, sadly that building only got knocked down recently. Did you see that?
0: Yeah, I saw that on Facebook. It's pretty yeah, sad. Yeah.
1: It was tough to look at. It was because all the chairs were still there. Everything you could still see all the furniture. But yeah, that side room. It was good for a hardcore room. It was just. It was all about just going in there and dancing. And to DJ out. It was a, a nice little booth in there. And um, yeah, always pumpy tunes. And then I'd rock back to the to the tube to do my thing after that. But that's oh, um, yeah. that's one thing too. Now when you compare now to then, record crates like those. <laughs> I. Certainly lugging record crates around the street was always tough. And, you know, I've still been looking online for good record crates nowadays, thinking that they might have upgraded them. They still haven't. Like, it's just your basic square crate. There needs to be one. Like, I've got one with little wheels on it. But there needs to be one, I think, with bigger wheels. Because whenever you've got those wheel record crates and you're wheeling them along the street, every time you go down a gutter, it turns over and flips over. So, yeah. scratches the bottom of it yeah they need to fix that up that's for sure just yeah it needs to be some sort of heavy duty record right
0: thinking around that era because that was kind of like my sort of heyday what's a gig that would stick out in your mind sort of around that like late 90s early 2000s as a real highlight
1: probably yet again it'd be some tube knots like volume parties that was so good global grooves was great that was when it was Nick Fish, Jumpin' Jack and Sasha came up and I was playing with them. A lot of internationals, but I'd say that, oh yes, really good internationals too. I just remember that. Dwayne Harden was a classic. Dwayne Harden, I think that was his surname, yeah. He was singing his thing, going around the crowd. Me and Angus were having fun, having a good laugh with him. He was a classic. But, yeah, the volume parties, I do remember playing.
0: And hang on sorry just yeah, yeah the, the guy who stuff. sung you don't know me the yes, van helden song he that's was he it. at the tube he was yep
1: he was and wow i never knew he that. was the nicest chirpiest gayest guy you've ever seen he was just a classic and yeah, Angus rang me the next morning and we chatted for about an hour and a half about our night then. I remember that one well. That was oh, great days. That would have been 98, I reckon. Used to, all the DJs were given a shirt that night. It was red and it had unlimited, I think it was called Unlimited House Tour. And um, yeah, we had a great night. But the one of the nights that stands out for me at the Tube, oh, there were so many because, yeah, you can see some of them on that Vimeo thing, but I, I remember I was playing and digital sort of stuff was just starting to take over like the guy had a screen up and it, on the screen it had Barking Boy fucking rocks and the whole crowd was cheering and that I'm up there playing. I'm like, geez, this is quite humbling. here. Look at this.
0: Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but
1: that was just in its packed days where, you, yeah, you'd go in there and the whole place was just heaving with people.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and the low ceilings kind of always added to that atmosphere too but also made it hard with props to to dress the room up because um, I remember Renaissance come along for their tour and they weren't happy because they didn't have anywhere to hang all their big drapes and sheets because it was a low ceiling. But what can you do? I mean, the low ceiling is what made it so underground.
0: Was that with Sasha?
1: Oh, I can't remember who was on that bill, but I remember they just weren't impressed with their new. which, you know, that's a bit, uh, we weren't too impressed when we read that. It was like, well, our venue didn't suit what they wanted to do with their props, but um, they wrote something in a magazine that was a bit negative. But, yeah, it was just, you know, the low ceilings, obviously. You can't do much with it. And who could forget the black and white checkered tiles, hey?
0: Yeah, yeah. I was think, I was, I'm visualising that, as you were saying, about, you know, everyone in there jumping up and down. I'm, yeah. I look down and see the floor.
1: Well, we used to sometimes try to break the room up a bit because it was a big room to fill. So if you were doing a weeknight event, you didn't really, a lot of people are a bit intimidated to get up and dance early in the night. So we used to hang up that camouflage. Remember all the camouflage, sort of like army camo? Yeah, You'd hang yeah. it around the room to give people a bit of privacy so they weren't as inhibited to get up on the floor. Um, yeah, we used to have a lot of props, massive milk carton. and Remember those things? So that would have been 95 though
0: yeah i don't remember that no
1: yeah yeah what year did you start there
0: 96 was the first time i went there and it, and it just changed me forever
1: <laughs> yeah 96 i think that was around the time they started doing some dj comps there as well i remember judging with peter mogg and jenny um yeah about 96 was when they started doing the old dj comp yeah but yeah awesome. it's 99 was when it um when it finished
0: and then it kind of moved on to like the the adventure rave seemed to just it went uh, uh, i think the first adventure rave i went to was at the arena and it was so busy mm. that like you couldn't find your way around the venue like i was yeah. in the main room i couldn't even work out where the dj was well that's that, thing, many people. that not
1: many people could there was either two places the dj would be in that main room there was a, a little landing up in the middle there where they'd often be in the early days but then they'd put them down on the main stage um eventually but yeah, I must say my memories of being in the main room downstairs there were usually trying to make my way to the console to get through the crowd, but smelly armpits, that's what I'll always comes. To...
0: <laughs> and cigarettes, so <laughs> eh? just cigarette yeah. smoke and oh.
1: shirtless guys with sweaty armpits, I always yeah. remember. But I always did love that top room. It the, the upstairs area was awesome. That was where I'm just trying to think. I played a recovery up there for an adrenaline probably before my first adrenaline which would have been ninety three or something. So that room will always hold special memories to me as well for that reason. Um, it was something like that. Um, there used to be an event there called the Dawning that was a recovery event, which I think Luke Hollis used to run. That's and For me, that was odd, though, at times when you'd play at a recovery because the best way to DJ a recovery is to be up all night partying with people and then just roll through. But there'd be the odd time where I might have a sleep that night, you know, and you'd set your alarm for 6 a.m., it just wasn't right. Like you get there and do yeah. a set, but you weren't on the same level. Yeah, yeah I <laughs> it remember. Just what... Yeah, it couldn't work that way. I know there was heaps of recovery events as the years went on. I think there was that one. What Was the one that was big in the late nineties? Oh, the morning, there was morning glory. Morning glory. Then it was glory. boom mm-hmm.
0: eyes, and uh, yeah, I went to boom a couple of times, and it was.
1: Yeah, I didn't. I didn't remember Sundex on a Sunday afternoon out of oh, yeah. That yeah. was really good. Yeah, it was good for a while. Yeah, uh, there was plenty of um, plenty of recoveries in the early nineties too, but they were never planned. They just seemed to be off the bat. You would just rock up at some club,
0: congregate um, somewhere.
1: Yeah, some crazy punters roaming around the city at seven a.m. on a Sunday, like yeah, for some recovery. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so you've you've always played um vinyl, and around sort of like the mid two thousands, it really did transition quickly to like CDs and using CDJs.
1: Yeah, it did. How did you
0: find that? Did you get into the CDJs or?
1: No, I didn't. And I mean, that was just, it just felt natural for me not to get into them. But I mean, I because I just loved vinyl, I always have. And I still embrace vinyl for so many reasons. Like when you're playing records, when I, I, I don't like to play in my set. So when I'm up there playing, that's part of the fun, part of the challenge as well is to read the crowd and to, without, playing solely to the crowd but you've got to take it in direction of the night that's appropriate and I'll I'll sort of as I look at a record when I'm pulling up a record out of my crate I see the cover and I hear the tune immediately I can do that with my whole with all my shelves here as soon as I look at the record I hear the song in my head whereas I've tried DJing a few times off a laptop a different story because you're scrolling through names you're squinting yeah. there looking there like needing prescription glasses almost <laughs> yeah you're looking through at the name so that's probably why there's a lot more planning of sets going on now too because people need to know like they, they have things in keys and all that now as well it's yeah. all keyed up for them whereas i just love the fact that with a, a record you can pull it up look at it you know it's in your hand you put it on the deck it's just a whole So with when the vinyl was vinyl was always the way, and then around two thousand I think it was when I used to get a lot of tunes sent to me, and I remember they started sending CDs a bit, and then it got CDs almost started dominating more than vinyl around yeah two thousand and one. But I always remember this record company. I still don't know which one it was, but they said vinyl. The vinyl, you know, revolution is dead, so to speak. If you haven't got a CDJ player yet, ask your kid brother for one. I just remember thinking, wow, that's a bit heavy. So it's yeah. kind of like it's suddenly become uncool to have vinyl and they just wanted to go in a different direction. But as you can see now, look at vinyl, everyone's yeah. right back into it. And another major difference too is that I haven't brought up is that vinyl, you know, it's it was 22 bucks for a record. So these days you can get everything off Beatport for two dollars. So it's a lot cheaper to be a DJ now. You can just have a whole, you know, a whole set for fifty bucks or something or less. Whereas we had to be really thoughtful when we're in record stores uh, about what we bought. Yeah, because and obviously wages were um, less. Although I must say when I was playing at Family back in two thousand and one, too, it was seventy five an hour then for a resident DJ in a club. Um, Tube Days was around 50 I think they're playing for less now I'm not sure but yeah, from what I can gather Yeah from what I can gather they're playing for less But we did have to fork out so much money for vinyl But no regrets I mean that's why I haven't sold all the records I've bought I don't think I've sold any I do have quite a few promos that I'm planning to sell It's just the finding out the best way to do it Whether you do it through uh, discogs Which would be very time consuming I think or whether you just take it to a record store and just dump them there or sell them privately i'm not sure but it's a i think i needed a few more weeks off during the covid era to get that sorted
0: it's a big job just it on is. a side note there you were saying yeah. about the um you know buying vinyl and each yeah. record was like over twenty dollars yeah like such a huge commitment but also what people don't understand now and i hate to sound like a a whinging old git but I went to a record shop in Brisbane recently and if you're living in Brisbane I definitely would check it out it's called Monster Robot Records and uh it's underneath like a, it's a shop underneath the building in I think Spring Hill and um there's like hundreds of thousands of records when you walk in and it just yeah. makes you remember how hard it, it actually is to structure a really good DJ set using records yeah because you're just so spoilt for choice that's and true. everything sounds so good when you're listening to it on the on the decks that they've got in the shop. Yeah. It's such a skill that most people, the most DJs now don't have because you could basically buy the top ten on beatport and you'd have a pretty good set, wouldn't you? That's just a
1: great point. So because,
0: much yeah. harder.
1: Yeah. yeah. Because that's like when you'd go record shopping too, you had to be in the mood. Like sometimes you'd get there there'd be a lot of people using the deck um, central station had a little booth at the back and you always wanted to get out there but sometimes i'd have 30 or 40 records to listen to and yeah you'd start off and you'd be really listening intently and then after an hour or so you're thinking geez i've only been through 15 the next guy's waiting outside getting shits um, i better buy a heap or they're going to be disappointed because i've been here so long yeah. so you'd have to and then you'd go back and listen to the ones that you thought were good, and you, they might be as good. But yeah, it was the pressure was on, I guess, when you're in the record store because you had to sort of choose what you wanted. And then when you left, and obviously everything sounds better on headphones too. Yeah, these days you can put things in your in your beatport cart, go back the next day, listen again, decide whether you want it or not. But yeah, I don't think I kind of recall buying many tracks though that I regretted. Usually they were good choices. But it was yeah, it was a it was a fun process, but if you weren't in the right mood, it could be tough record shopping.
0: Yeah. So let's just say you're you're booked to play on a stage at um say summer field days down the Gold Coast, which you you played like most of the major festivals and stuff yeah. when they when yeah, they rolled through and, and yeah. you are playing um vinyl, would you put together a set or would you just take a box of new tunes and then just pick as you like on the fly?
1: Yeah, I sort of I never planned sets right. And that that goes right back to when I started because when I first started, I, you know, when you do a tape, for example, back in the day, a cassette tape, you'd you'd plan it and you never had fun because you'd planned it. But at least with a tape, you could sort of do that. You're not playing to a crowd. But I see a lot of DJs that plan their sets and they get up there and it mightn't be going right and the crowd's a bit restless, but because they've planned it, that's all they know. And they're they're not enjoying themselves. You go up and talk to them. They can't talk. go and put the next record on because it needs to be mixed out at this time and that time, and it's not. I don't know. I mean, if that's if that's the way they enjoy it, that's fine. Like nothing against that, but it just doesn't work for me because I think there was definitely one time where I had some tracks planned, and that's right. It might have been the recovery at the Roxy, my very first general recovery. and They had to close early. So I had a one hour set plan and I was half an hour into it. We had to close and I was so disappointed instead of, you know, enjoying the half hour that I had was like, but I've got half an hour to go. And that was just like, no, that was the very early lesson not to plan. Yeah. The whole spontaneity of the night of reading the crowd, that's what it's always been about for me. And, and knowing that, um, yeah, I've got all the tunes here, all the weapons anyway, it's just a matter of when to plan. But obviously I think it helps to know your first two or three tunes, like have a rough idea. Like, yeah. for example, at a candy flip, I might throw in a um, couple of pairs of tunes that I think would start well, would start my set well. But I tend to, um, because I'm running the event and I play it every one, I'm happy to let anyone else play whatever they want to play and I'll just work around that. So that's another reason why I phrase so many records in my crate because I don't want to play something that's already been played.
0: Yeah. So. You never know what you're going to need.
1: Yeah. So I just try to fill the void of whatever I think the night needs. Like if there haven't been enough vocally sort of tracks, I'll throw in a few vocals or, you know, whatever. I Obviously every tune that I've got in my crate, I love. So I'm happy to put on. Yeah. It's a good challenge though. It's what makes the night
0: fun. So you went to Canada at some point, 2003, I think. Yep. That's right. What happened? What was... So, I get I'd away been, from Brisbane for a bit. Yeah, I have
1: kind of wanted a break from Brisbane because, you know, the CD sort of thing was taking over, but I felt like I needed a change as well. That's the thing. I've been doing the same thing for 12 or 13 years and I just felt like a change. And when my mate said, uh, if you move to Canada before you're 30, you can get a working holiday visa. And I just said, yep, yeah, let's do it. So, first we went to Vancouver and then caught the bus all the way across to Toronto and lived there. And so, That was when the net was first starting to take effect. So I thought, oh, I better do up a website, contact a few people, and got a few cool gigs in Toronto and Quebec. I played on a really uh, cool boat cruise with Spellbound from Sydney, who was over there, living there as well, which was a spin-out. I'd never met him in Australia, and yet there we were headlining at some boat party in Toronto. And then my favourite gig, when when I went to Europe, my favourite was this gig in Estonia. I'll never forget it because it was out... In the middle of nowhere and everyone's just so different over there too it felt so dodgy like just uh just a completely different world to what i had been used to and so I was there with my mate and we were staying in this really nice sort of thatched roof place it was snowing and all that we rocked up at the gig and it was a ex-mafia sort of warehouse type place the snow was so high that we had to wade through the snow to come in the back door of the club and it was up to my knees and that and there I am running in with my record crate get up to the stage and they said you're on I said what now because I have no concept of time they'd been driving me everywhere and that they just delivered me in there boom you're on so that's a case of where obviously you can't really play to the crowd because that would also that would probably be a good case to have planned just set because you know you don't really know that crowd well boom you're straight on the stage yeah. but what I played went really well but I just remember just some crazy sights, like a guy walking around with a big bag of pills like Santa Claus, just offering them to people. <laughs> and um, yeah, some guy tried to pickpocket me as well, mind you, after the set. But I always have my um, wallet in a place where I can feel it. So I felt his hand on my wallet and uh, stopped him in his tracks. So he got thrown out. But that was the only low light of a really good night. That was that was a really memorable event. That one in Estonia.
0: (laughs) Wow! So you've had a career that's been going for years. You've DJed at every, basically every major festival, every major club in Brisbane you've toured around the country sort of getting to like present day times you've got your um your own night called Candy Flip how did that come about and how long has that been running for because that's been going for quite a while now it's
1: been going it's so old school that it's old school in itself um when about 2004 when I'd come back from overseas Scott Walker called me I'd, I'd hung out with Scotty a bit in the past he remembered more than me but anyway he called me and he said we should do an old school night and I said, yeah, yeah, I'm up for that. But then he never rang back for a year or so. And I had it sort of penciled down as we should do an old school night. But, you know, that was, say, 2005, we chatted again. 2006, we said, all right, we've really got to do this. So in hindsight, like the 90s was only six or seven years before 2006. So when we did our first event, it was February 2007. Oh, oh I actually wow, had... that,
0: that long yeah. ago.
1: Yeah, February 2007. Oh, yeah. I actually had uh, the late, great Stuart Dufty booked in to play. He was going to do open set. And, yeah, unfortunately, he passed before the event. But with the very first one was at the Shamrock. And I remember Angus found out that it was on and he wasn't on the bill. And he rang me up and he's like, hey, man, what's the go? What's, what's what's this about? You haven't got me on the bill. And I said, but you live in Melbourne, dude. And he's like, well, yeah, I'll come up and play. And I said, but... I can't afford to, you know, shout your airfares. And that. it's just a, a low, like it's only $10 entry. And that is he's yeah. like, man, no, I don't care, man. Don't pay me. I just want to be a part of it. Because he'd already seen the flyer and it had Edwin, Keston, me, Mark Brea, Um, Jenny wasn't at that one because she was in Perth at the time. Um, and Rousey, that's right. So Angus found out anyway, so he had to come up to play. So that was at Shamrock, and that was a success. And then we left the next event for another year, which was two thousand and eight, and yet again Angus came up from Melbourne for it. This time I paid him though, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and yeah. and I think Jenny was there for that one. And we had you know Gus and Sue from the tube were there as well. Um, so that that's going back a long way. And um, yeah, since then it's just. It started off as such an underground little event with a lot of the early 90s crowd. And we still get a smaller element of that early 90s crowd, but it's also progressed into now we get a lot of young crew. Like there's people in their 20s that come along because they can identify with those classic old-school tunes. They they may just love the vibe. They spin out at how good the vibe is. And then you've also got your regulars that, you know, a lot of mid to late 90s party crew that are still going out having fun. Um, The night also advanced and that we used to be 9 p.m till 3 a.m started and after a while after probably three or four years of it you were kind of only getting the people who would still go out clubbing regularly at the event and we wanted to get the people that were there back in the day that had kids now and stuff like that but still knew how to party so it was kind of by chance by luck really that, that when we're at I think it was capulet they said that you have to do 2 p.m till 9 p.m i think it was there and that was great because we thought oh it might be a bit hotter it might not work but suddenly everyone thought this is really cool we get to go out and party and we can be home in bed by midnight so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's Much just better con- yeah so it's just continued to grow um every time and yeah it's good to uh get out all those old school people but yeah loving loving seeing the new ones as well and The other thing, too, that's very humbling is that the DJs that play, all the guests, whether they're interstate or wherever, they're always so glad that they got to play because they always come up to me and say, man, your crowd, they know the tunes. I've never played at an old school event like this. Like, usually, you know, the crowd will be there for a bit of fun, but they don't know the tunes. But, yeah, Craig O'Bay was spinning out. He's like, man, these guys, they know every tune. Like, this is awesome. Best vibe ever. Because it really does feel like that 90s vibe. yeah Yeah. people we usually have a little lineup outside before 2 p.m so for me it's just that i'm just so so proud of where it where it's at because when we started it we didn't you know what's it been 17 years now 7 16 it's like yeah never in my wildest dreams did i think we would go for that long and it's still you know it's almost like we're representing the brisbane old school which is so humbling because i was just such a small player in such a big scene back then so yeah there's so many people that i'm just so honored to that they're a part of it yeah
0: but that's like this like me getting to have a chat to you like i I sort of touched on it earlier but you guys are like legends of the brisbane scene like you know you jenny thief i mean we've lost a few of them angus Edwin yeah. and, and all the rest. Like I used to go to gigs and not even like know who yous were. You know, yeah, yous were well, kind of like faceless. Yeah, yeah. You know, you'd see the name everywhere, but you would never really get to actually see them. And when you and if you did, it was so busy you weren't. You know, not yeah. everyone was just staring at the DJ anyway. We we're just having fun, but
1: well, that's the thing. I think when when you're at a gig and you've got so many people in the crowd, you do tend to just go straight to the console. But if you get any of us one-on-one we're actually really friendly people like jenny's really chatty like jenny's friendly as brenton's the top guy i think we all and this is another thing too don't forget in the 90s there was no such thing as vip rooms and green rooms and all that so when you weren't djing you were mixing with the crowd yeah which i think is awesome
0: yeah because sure.
1: that's another thing in 2000 that's around the time vip rooms came about and so you know, I, I always like the DJs to be mixing with the crowd. I guess I relate that back to the Angus thing. You know what Angus was like, always mixing in with everyone. But it was just, yeah, the VIP rooms does, it they create that separation factor. So therefore, you only really get to know a certain amount of people if you're always off in the VIP room. But 90s, it was, yeah, everyone for themselves out in the venue. Yeah, it was great.
0: Well, an example of that is I went to Ibiza in 98 and it was just out of control like it was for me like i've I've heard from like watching youtube documentaries and stuff that sort of like the late 90s is when it went downhill but the first time i went it was out of control like it was just no rules yeah everyone was just having the time of their lives and then i went back in a, about the mid 2000s and it had completely changed to like vip culture yeah. and and it just what it just uh, like it left me with a really i was sad like when we left yeah it's was like it's an this interesting thought,
1: really what's interesting is because i've got some mates that said whenever you turn 18 everyone will always say that was the best when the scene was the best when they were 18 they yeah. started going out but sometimes you wonder like what really was the best year or was it just because you're 18 and you just hit the clubs or it's all new to you it's um yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I often think 1980 in New York or 79, 80 New York City would have been awesome. Yeah. Like the Studio 54, the Paradise Garage type yeah, era. Yeah, yeah. Um, Andy Warhol and Amazing. all that. So, yeah. yeah but, and then you've got the UK in the late 80s, like 88, 89 Hacienda and all that. I guess it's all relative. But, yeah, the, the VIP thing, I mean, sometimes, yes, it's awesome when you're playing and you've got, all this luxury out the back. I mean, it is good at times on a hot day, like if you were to Summerfield Days or Two Tribes, I remember that area at the back was so good. But yeah, other times in club culture, you want to be able to sort of mix it a bit with the crowd. I guess as you get older, it's good to have that little bit of separation and, and free drinks. Nice to
0: clean know. toilets and stuff. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's it, clean <laughs> toilets. That's a good one. That's another thing I've learned too. Sorry, ladies, but uh, the men's toilets are generally a lot cleaner than the women's at the end of the night. From from yeah, my true. experience yeah. in the tube nightclub when I'd be there the next day or something sort of helping out or, you know, you'd, you'd go and I remember chatting with the cleaner once and he said to me, mate, the women's toilets. <laughs> oh, Crazy. well, I guess girls spend more time partying there. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Mate, well, let's go through your, um, your top five all time. I mean, it's very, it's such a hard thing to do. Really challenging. So um, I mean, how do you pick five tracks? So
1: it's almost impossible that's, yeah. that's like I said to you, I can't pick my top five favorite checks because that changes all the time, but I can pick the top five that are most related to Barking Boy and yeah, when I think of my big tunes and what everything means to me, yeah, they'd be the best, the, the top five.
0: If you, if you head to the Instagram page, I've, um, I've got little snippets of all of these. So what, if I, oh, I'll probably pronounce these wrong, but I'll, I'll whiz through yeah. them. Yeah, okay. Uh, Eritika. Yes. Habimus techno.
1: Yeah, so it's I always thought it was habitus techno. It's actually pronounced herbaceous. And okay. It's that is just a, such an epic folklore track amongst old school DJs, right? Because that was always my favorite, right? Now Kesson used to play it, Angus used to play it, Freestyle loved it. Um Trady also had it. Uh Ashton, and then it was just it's just such a good techie track. Like it's really, for its time, it's just a belter. And I still used to play that at the Tube. Sometimes I'd play it, I, you know, I could still play it at Candyfoot. There's people, Michael Hogg's another one, in sync. he always requests it. So that's just a classic track. And I actually researched the other day. They only ever had two tracks, whoever they are. And their other track's really good too. Um, Sounds quite similar. But yeah, so that that was always kind of my go-to favourite track. Um, because those that had it just guarded it with their life and loved it
0: uh, pretty rare yeah and then we've got holy noise get down everybody
1: yeah and well that's a uh reference
0: to angus uh, yeah to that's another
1: that. that's that's it's funny that one because when i first bought records from central that was in a group of three but it was the non-vocal mix so i bought that but yeah angus calling me up on stage at hinterland High. that was the tune then so when he called me up and i put that on i'll always remember that track for that reason like the first time i got to play a tune to a crowd and yeah it was just a really good mix too it was perfect it was quick it just boom it was in so yeah that's always special for that reason
0: and then you've got Techmania rebel circus beat
1: yeah well, you'd probably know that if you listened to it
0: it's yeah. I I knew the Holy Noise tune as well, but I just yeah. I didn't know the name. As soon as I played it, I was like, Oh, I know this! Yeah, yeah,
1: was well, Circus Beat. That's another one that I never really heard anyone else play that. But there'd barely be a set that I've done in the last twenty years where I didn't play that at some point, and it always goes off. It's just a classic middle of the night or middle of the set, just great floor filler, and it's still got that underground vibe to it. Actually, I heard Carl Cox play it once. That's the only. Other person, so that's pretty cool.
0: <laughs> I'm sure wow. heaps
1: of people have probably got it though. It's just that I haven't heard of of it
0: And then you've got Goyella, Goyella, the Gigolo mix.
1: Yeah, that's just, that was always, that's so tube to me, that track. That just reminds me of everyone on the floor going ballistic, um, you know, 3 30 a.m. Just always, yeah, great track to mix in the way it just builds. It's just a real, yeah, just a Real floor filler, vibing room track, big room track.
0: Classic anthem, that one. And then yeah. you've got Tony D'V. Are you, ready? Yeah, uh, well, it, are you ready? yeah. Are you all ready? Yeah. Are you Already? I thought it was ready? "Are You Ready." It's
1: called "Are You Already? but yeah, that's that's one that was just that was my most requested track of all time. I used to get requested "Twisted" a lot too, but I got sick of that track. Um, but yeah, "Are You All Ready?" Just Always requested every Saturday night at the tube and it is a stomper. Like it's just when it kicks in, yeah. absolute belter of a track. So yeah, I, I had to put that in the list as well.
0: Bit of a side note to that. I was I was living in England at the time and I had tickets to go see Tony De V and um I was at work during the week and it came over the radio that he'd de- just died. Yeah. But, oh, oh no. So I never actually got to see him, but
1: Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. Really nice just,
0: guy, apparently.
1: I know. It was a shock. Eh? And his tunes are still living on.
0: Yeah, still going now. Yeah, he mixed
1: thousands six. of times. Yeah.
0: Did he yeah. ever play in Brisbane? Mm-hmm.
1: I missed it. I was playing somewhere else the same night. It was at it was at the tube, but I'm pretty sure he was at the tube before I started working there. Oh, um wow. because the tube started I think ninety four and I I was there a year after it began. I think it was mainly um Darren James and Ken Jensen at the helm then and uh Stephen Bellino used to run it. Yeah, Dizzy was there. I think oh, Gracie in that were at the Dome at that time. These are probably before your time, mate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> close to your time, yeah.
0: I've heard about them, but yeah, never got to go. Mm. I'm just stoked I got to go to the Tube because so many people I know missed out. and Yeah. It was awesome. And then you've actually got an extra one here. Steve Morley, Reincarnations, the DJ Jam X. Jumon Mix, is it? Yeah.
1: Yes, that's it. See, th- this is last track of the night. I had to mention that because I was thinking of different categories that I could break the top five into. And that's just one of those tracks that just goes, just a beautiful trans classic, like great last track of the night. Uh, and that one still, whenever I listen to that, and I try not to listen to it too often because I love it so much. So yeah. when I do listen to it, I always get the goosebumps. So that had to go in there.
0: Yeah, awesome. I mean, that's such a hard thing to do. How do you... Like you, for people that are listening, there's thousands of vinyls stacked on shelves behind behind you there mm. on screen. Like, how do you pick five out of all them? Like, yeah, well, it's funny, you
1: know. Now you mentioned that, that's something I haven't brought up. Is that a lot of DJs categorize their records in different ways, but I do mine according to what club I was at or what era it might have been. So I know you probably can't see it that well, but the top, the whole top row is the tube. So those top four are all tube classics. Then the next layer down, it's stuff like um, the clubs after that, like 2000, 2001, Family, and um, House Arbor. I used to play at Friday's Mooloola Bar too for a little while. Um, Then you've got, yeah, more house classics from the late 90s era um, when I was at Quest and places like that. And then down there, the next row down is all 91. Actually, it's 1990, 91, 92. They're just classics like all the early rave warehouse classic tunes piano hoover all that sort of stuff so the ones i tend to go back to the most are um, yeah the early 90s and the error. there's also um electro sort of stuff down the bottom then there's hardcore i've still got my hardcore stuff there which apparently is worth a lot now and then there's just two random shelves of stuff that i didn't play there's... that often but i don't want to uh, get rid all of of sorts of <laughs>
0: yeah Do the old ones still sound okay when you play them, like on the...
1: Yeah, most of them do. Uh, I took really good care of my records. Like, I never laid them on top of each other. I always put them back in their carvers. Well, at least I did on the next day. There were some times where you might shove them in your crate because you couldn't find it at the time. Yeah, but now i've always taken pretty good care of my records and i've got record cleaner here so before a candy flip i make sure i give them a lot yeah there's a there's a couple like one of my old favorites has got a little chip in the corner of it i don't know how that happened like the actual bit of record has come off it but mostly they still sound fine i mean they have always going to have that sort of warmer muddier sound like than cds and that but i um yeah what we have to when we do a candy flip, we have to try to get them to eq it according to vinyl because it is a slightly yeah. different sound. But that's another thing, too, that I should mention about candy flip that the crowd love. Like a lot of DJs stress because they haven't played for a long time and they're a bit nervous about playing out. I always say to them who cares if you do a bad mix? No one knows what a bad mix is anymore because everything's hit with a sink. Exactly. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. You almost want to make a mistake because the crowd love it. They'll cheer. It's like, what are you fearing? There's nothing to fear. Just yeah. get up there and have fun. And even worst case scenario, I remember times when Angus would be playing and he'd take the needle off the wrong record or he'd just have a laugh and put your hands in the air and play on. Oops. Like, it's, yeah. yeah. Whoops. Cause everyone's just there to have fun. So yeah. And I mean, sometimes uh, i have to remind the djs to clean their records because if they haven't they can sound a bit crackly in the club yeah. and these days with sound systems a lot crisper and you know better technology they will actually show up the cracks more the crackles okay so, yeah yeah you have to be careful of that but yeah apart from the usual little issues you might have on the night with head shells coming through one channel you just got to give them a blow and a lick and put them back in and the yeah, it's all part of the fun though.
0: Proper old school.
1: Yeah, yeah, awesome. that's it. It's um, I I often uh, you know one thing actually that Angus used to do to me, but it was a sign of respect that when he'd do it to you, he would come into the console when he was on after you, especially. But he would actually move the pitch control when you weren't looking, <laughs> when you might be in the mix or something, and he'd move it, and you'd turn around and think, "What's going on here?" And you look at and Angus and have a grin on his face, but. I think that's his way of saying, no, nah, you'll be right. You'll get it
0: Yeah, back. you can do it. Yeah, you can, yeah, bring you can it do back. it.
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: So you got any candy flips coming up?
1: Yeah, February the 4th. What's that? Three and a half, what, three weeks away. Yeah. yeah. So we've got Jumping Jack this time. So yeah, it's good to have him on board. And Sally Sam, we've got the most DJs I've ever had at a candy flip. So.
0: <laughs> and where's this one?
1: This one's at La La Land again and also the Bowie Room. Um, So it's at Prince Consort. Yeah, we've got the face painter in again, too. She was very popular last time. Expecting probably last time we sold out. So probably get about hopefully 500 there. But, yeah, it's, yeah, jumping jack. Well, we've got 16 DJs, so it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be busy. I'm I'm actually playing. I haven't really released the set times yet, but I'm going to do clothes this time in the main room. So it's like the old tube days, I think. You
0: can go for it. That's what I'm thinking. A bit of Tony to set. V.
1: Yeah, well, maybe, yeah. Yeah, because um, yeah, it'll just be an hour set. And it, it is quite tough for me, though, playing last because I'm there from the start when we start setting up and all that. Naked. But I thought, no, nah, something different because I've, I've played earlier the last few times. But, yeah, playing last would be a challenge and it should be easy to pack my crate too. I won't have to throw in so many tunes because I've always got a packed crate. At least if I'm playing last, I can just sort of. Yeah, just wing it and see how it goes. Yeah, oh, awesome. and then we'll go into the house room after it, um, and that'll probably roll on till at least midnight. So unreal. You'll have to come along to this one. Yeah,
0: I'll have to, mate. I'll definitely get tickets. Yeah, for sure. Good stuff. Oh, mate, thank you very much for um having a chat.
1: Yeah, it's been we'll, a pleasure. Um,
0: we'll uh, wrap it up there, but it's been fascinating. If you're anything yeah. like me, I I love um listening to the history of stuff like that. So. Loved every minute of it. I could have just kept going, but I'm thinking that. I know, no,
1: so could I. I could... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I got to be careful. You have to sometimes guard, be guarded about what you talk about in the past. But yeah, oh, yeah. no, it's awesome chatting about. It. I love it. It's yeah, a huge part of my life, and I'm very glad for that.
0: And you're still going. That's all the that yeah, matters. loving it. I couldn't couldn't do without
1: it really. I just love having it on the side. Yeah.
0: All right, mate. We'll um, we'll wrap it up there.
1: Awesome, Steve.
0: And thanks again for coming on.
1: All right. Cheers, mate.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I sure did. What a legend Barking Boy is. Top DJ. Top guy. And as you heard, he's got his next event, Candy Flip, on the 4th of February. And it's headlined by Jumping Jack, Sally Sound, Bexter, Jenny, Mark Dynamics, and many, many more. So check it out. It'll be a good night. I'll see you all there.